netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the film Arrival. And I have to start off with a spoiler alert. I know that almost every one of these podcasts is basically a giant spoiler, but in particular this one, if you haven't seen the film, this podcast is loaded with spoilers. And also most people I know who've seen the film, myself included, really liked what we saw. And what we liked, what I liked about it anyway was that I saw a few cryptic posts that people said they really liked the film, and I went in pretty uninformed. And I love seeing films like that, and it so rarely happens these days. So let me say, I really admire this film for its pacing, story, and look. It really stands out as a very nice, complex, story-driven piece. And when I say pacing, if you're looking looking for an alien movie with explosions and Michael Bay type stuff, this is not the film for you. Um, But it is what I consider a really nice film, a really good film, and I hope you'll see it with fresh eyes and without a lot of pre-warning. So today, Mike Seymour is going to talk with Louis Moray, visual effects supervisor on the overall film. So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. I think there's a lot of good detail in here. So let's just jump in right away with Mike Seymour speaking with Louis Moray. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Where are you where am I speaking to you from? You're in Canada right now, right? That's correct. Like uh, We're based uh, in Montreal, uh, which is uh, in the province of Quebec, Canada. So I absolutely uh, loved this film. I, I just uh, Many people have commented just how terrific it was. When did you first get um, involved? Uh, it's kind of interesting because um, some people at Film Nation called me like uh, three years ago and they had this project coming. And uh, so I got a chance to read the script, but uh, there was another director involved. Uh, the film died, and then um, I got news from uh, Denis Villeneuve that uh, he was on board. So I contacted Denis and asked him if he would be interested to work with me on, on, uh, on that movie. So this is a film that doesn't have a mega budget. I mean, it has a sensible budget, and it's a, it's a great film, but it's not like you have an infinite kind of, uh, dare I say it, Marvel kind of, you know, that runs into like the hundreds and fifty million dollar range. So there must have been uh, a certain amount of deciding. Well, where are we going to spend our budget to have most amount of effect? And I guess could I start with the characters? Was it always uh, by the time you got involved that the characters were going to appear the way that they did, um, or were you involved a little earlier when you were trying to just sort of discover uh, what those characters would look like? Well, uh, I, I started really early on the project, but um, what I suggested to the producers is to find a concept designer, uh, uh, maybe a couple, and, and try to uh, you know cast them and find the most appropriate guy that could uh, create Denise's vision. So uh, starting from there, they chose uh, Carlos Suente, who worked with Ridley Scott on uh, Prometheus, and uh, Denis and Carlos worked together a uh, few months uh, to develop uh, a, a specific character that Denis had in mind for his uh, story for Arrival. The thing about it is that in the original short story, I think, and certainly in certainly some of the early drafts before it was really sort of conceptualized, the characters had no front. Um, I think they actually were able to see in every direction because of this idea that they, they weren't sort of aware of moving forward. They would, you know, any, any which way they moved was uh, forward as part of the, I guess, narrative of the nature of the, the beast. But something they can look in every direction is something that's very hard to visualize. Um, were there sort of struggles with what would be a, a design of a character that would be in sync with the nature of their understanding of time? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the the key thing I think that Denis wanted to focus on is that there was absolutely no eyes in the alien and uh, try to stay away from any anthropomorphic uh, look for the alien. So the alien had to look really weird. And I think they, they've done this quite successfully. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of aspects about the creatures that are incredible. I mean, obviously, the, the look of them has an almost underwater sort of deep sea feel. Um, and then, of course, the way they communicate. Um, again, this idea of like how they were going to do the visual communication, uh, especially this kind of inky um, forming stuff. Was that uh, easy to arrive at? Um, this this started like the production the designer, Patrice Vermette, um, you know, wanted to tackle the, the language, which was like an enormous task. And uh, he, he worked with like um, uh, an artist. And, and basically what he, they started to do is like, uh, and that's based on the, on the short story, uh, what we call the logograms, like a circular form of writing uh, sentences, words, uh, and that's what he came up with. Like they needed that uh, really early in the process because in many scenes they were working like uh, physically on, on pieces of printout of papers of logograms. Uh, but those logograms were looking like coffee stains in, in yeah. a certain way. And my task was like, I mean, the discussion with the production designer, he wanted to go with particles and uh, I wasn't comfortable with particles. Uh, I thought like in, in the environment that we had, in the mist, that uh, it wouldn't be effective. So I, I work more towards like um, uh, ink. And, and, um, and so, so we, we developed a look with like uh, uh, with simulations with ink. And that's how we came to uh, that circular form. And I wanted this to be really organic and, and feel physical and uh, the opposite of anything that could be uh, looking digital. So you worked with hybrid on both the aliens and the logograms, didn't you? Yes. And, and how was that experience? Like uh, how many shots did you end up doing of the actual aliens? Because they have a lot of impact on screen, but I imagine it isn't that big a shot count. Well, it's uh, 235 shots uh, okay. of aliens and logograms. So it's quite substantial. Uh, the, the difficulty is that, you you know, we're creating a world that doesn't exist uh, with aliens, with a behavior, uh, a way of communicating and all that. So there, there was a lot of uh, research, trial and error, uh, trying to develop the body language, uh, uh, trying to develop the look, texture of the, those aliens and the environment uh, which they're in. And all this took, took a lot of time to nail it down. And after that, per shot, like uh, we were really, really picky, uh, including Joe Walker, the editor that worked closely with me on that, uh, to, to truly develop a body language that could, uh, you know, reflect the story and, and enhance uh, the, the character story because ultimately what really counts is Amy's story in, in, uh, in the movie, which is Louise. Yeah. On the, on the logograms, um, I understand that uh, Stephen Wolfren, who's obviously famous for his work with, um, with the maths uh, actual application, was consulting. And there was like actually quite a lot of visualization work to try and make sense of something that would um, hold 
hold ground. Obviously, there's the circular nature of the language, but these idea of sort of points on your um, on what you jokingly refer to as the, as the coffee stain um, that made it much more detailed, much more high frequency, much more something that uh, that would have the sense of being able to communicate a, a much more detail and richer description. Um, well, basically, we we were truthful to the uh, the, the logograms, the language that was developed by the production designer. Uh, the, uh, the 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 difficulty we had is, is just like how the alien would throw the ink and and how this ink would travel through uh, that mist and and try to uh, stay away from the retargeting because at some point uh, that's what happened i mean we have to uh, to match the, the the lettering if i can express myself that yeah. way for the the, the writing uh, what we were fighting against uh, at all times was like uh, the feel of retargeting and uh, that the uh, logogram was stopping to be alive. And so we work really hard to, to keep this organic and keep moving. And, and uh, this uh, took a lot, a lot of time to nail down. Uh, and when we got the first logogram looking great, then after that, we had the recipe for the rest of the movie. So that, that logogram takes place primarily in terms of the communication with the aliens on this giant for want of a better term, I'm going to say window, um, glass, partition, whatever that is that, um, that is inside the ship. So I presume that on set you had to actually have that, otherwise you wouldn't have had the right contact lighting on the actors. Uh, but by the same token, you're presumably what then, rotoing all of this in behind them? Um, well, it turned out like that was like a long discussion with Bradford because Bradford wasn't comfortable shooting with blue screen. Uh, at first, that's, that, that was the idea. I mean, coming from VFX, that's what you think. I mean, you have to separate foreground to yep. background. Uh, finally, we ended up like uh, because he needed the, that light, so we shot uh, against a white screen. And, and uh, uh, thanks for luminance skiing. And um, uh, and this way we could basically separate the actors fairly easily, a little roto here and there, but wasn't like an extensive work of, of rotoscopy. Uh, so it was really awful and turned out pretty good. And and the look is very organic and the light is 100% real, although we had to dim it down a little bit because the background was white and our environment was like a, a notch darker than that. The heptapods themselves are sitting in this kind of mist or whatever. So was that all um, just one CG element or were you basically trying to mix in volumetrics with the character animation work? Uh, all the shots were done uh, in deep compositing. Right. Uh, all the environment is one-to-one uh, -one with the alien. So every time an alien moves, there's like interaction. Of course, we, we had to add uh, here and there some enhancement, uh, all done in CG as well, uh, to, to make, uh, for example, like the alien uh, uh, leaving uh, up in the air. We had like uh, a lot of like, mist, like interacting with the alien moving. So there was like... Uh, uh, additional elements to enhance like uh, character movement in the shots. Did, did you find that there was uh, anything there in terms of the fluidity of, because you, you didn't want it to actually look like they were moving through water, but by the same token, it wasn't meant to be just our traditional mist either. I'm just wondering like uh, getting that right amount of viscosity and stuff to make it sort of feel like it was neither mist nor water. Um. It's interesting because um, 
the first vision I had personally was like uh, to put the aliens uh, in in uh, murky water. Yeah. And uh, I was convinced that that was uh, the best result. Uh, what we did is uh, with hybrid, we had like uh, four compositors uh, working on, on the same shot with a different uh, look. And uh, we developed what uh, Denny wanted because he was adamant. He wanted them to be in that mist. And we found some references of waterfall where water uh, that drops is not even water anymore. And, and that's, that's where Denny said, that's exactly what I want. And working with those four compositors, I asked them to develop different look. And one of them was like towards murky water. And we were before Christmas. And uh, then he said, okay, I'll go, I'll go your way. I'll go with the water look. And uh, coming back from the holidays, he came back to me and said, I changed my mind. I <laughs> want the mist again. So, uh, so that, that was like uh, the director's vision. And as always, we, we follow our master. And uh, that's what ended up uh, in, in the final movie. As your characters didn't have eyes, because um, as we say, we said didn't have a deliberate kind of face on Abbott and Costello, w- was eyeline for the actors important or was it like, well, obviously they're not meant to look at one particular point. So if I put a tennis ball up or something, that would, that would make it worse for eyeline. Well, actually, that's, that's exactly what we did. Um, we we did uh, as always, you know, previs. Uh, I, I showed that to Denny. Uh, he wasn't too concerned about it, but you know what I did is I I hired two guys. Let's call them puppeteers, and they had like a, a sphere on on, uh, on a pole that was measured to be the exact size of the aliens, and uh, they they had like headsets, and Denny had a microphone, and he was basically directing those those uh, poles. Uh, as uh, the scene was developing in any shots. So you had control of eyeline, and we had uh, basically no error uh, of eyeline in any shots. So it turned out pretty good, and it was simple and really efficient on the, on the set. I was pretty sure, now I might have got this wrong, but I was... I was uh, really excited at the end of the film and I glanced up at the screen in, in between talking to the person I was with and I'm sure I saw running by on the credits that there was a heptapod uh, motion capture credit. Is that right? Mm, not that I know of. Okay, good. <laughs> so how was the actual animation of the, the, um, the effect, I'm going to call it tentacle or whatever, like all of that was just keyframed animated? Because I couldn't yeah. imagine how you were going to motion capture it, but I thought I'd seen that go by in the credits. Maybe it was a joke. Uh, I, I would check. Uh, I guess I'll check the, the credits because... No, no, uh, maybe uh, I'll, I'll check it. I was a, a bit well, uh, we distracted. Had some capture, we had some motion capture for uh, digital crowds that we did. But uh, as far as the aliens concerned, uh, it's keyframe animation. And uh, we ran so many tests and try to develop the look. Uh, I mean, we got involved in, in trying to find this body language that's nor uh, an octopus, nor a spider. Had the, the aliens had also a hip movement to it. Uh, all this was created from scratch and uh, uh, took a lot of time to nail down the, um, the personality and the body language of those aliens to make it uh, awfully photoreal and feel like they're truly there. 
So stepping away now <clears throat> from the heptapods and uh, and the actual you know environment of the interaction, the other thing that was just uh, a brilliant stroke of luck, which I believe came from the director, was the idea of altering gravity as they move up into the uh, chamber. Um, how'd you go about filming that? Um, you know, thank, thanks uh, to uh, gravity. Uh, you know, I check all the making offs and uh, we have this special room like uh, uh, with like a motion control rig for uh, for the actor and uh, camera movement that that's controlled by a computer. Yep. So I, I basically designed the approach based on all the research they did. Uh, this being said, uh, our applications were much simpler and uh, the idea was just to connect the 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 two sets that we were shooting uh, in uh, there's actually three sets in, in the final result uh, but uh, mainly there was a vertical set as the Caesar lift going up yep. in the spaceship and there's a horizontal set when they walk towards the um, interview room so we had the motion control on on a plate we had like a free camera moving and the B plate was shot with um, a motion control um, techno dolly uh, to line up with the, the A plate. And the way I designed this, and uh, it was funny because Denis said that that's impossible, we can't work like that. I said, we're going to work A shot and B shot at the same time. So basically A team was shooting the, uh, the A plate and B team which where I was, uh, was shooting the matching plate as we were going. So we basically did two-day shoots in one day, just working that way. This being said, it's it's pretty forgiving because all this is a dark environment. There was some camera projection uh, because some shots, the timing was a little bit too long, so we had to change it. But uh, it turned out pretty good. We also had a set for the actors. Uh, basically what we call reverse engineer. So once all those shots, A plate, B plate were done, they were stitched together and we uh, analyzed the camera movement and we shot the actors uh, basically standing up and the camera, the techno dolly was just recreating the camera move uh, on their faces to, to, to keep the, the right perspective on their face. So that's that's the way we did, did it and worked out pretty well. Yeah, we and so all the azimuth suits were uh, completely CG in, in the shots. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. So I, I presume most of the time, you know, you would go for practical stuff, but was that the main digital double work, that and I presume the explosion? Uh, the For the digital work for actors, uh, the explosion was like uh, basically simple stunts uh, against blue screen. Uh, but there's a final shot where it's, it was impossible to to use uh, real actors or real stuntmen, uh, and they were like 100% digital for the last two shots when they remained standing in the tunnel. Right. So uh, now, if I'm not mistaken, the the gravity work wasn't done by Harbour. That was done by Rodeo, was it? Or? Yeah, that's right. Like Rodeo FX worked on that. They came on set with me, and we had like a compositing to just to verify all the shots were uh, working. Uh, and they did the, the the tech viz and and also the pose viz, and then completed the shots uh, in the final stage. In that tunnel sequence, um, because of the altering of gravity, one of the only clues we have as an audience as to what's going on necessarily is the texture of the chamber. And I was thinking about it and I was thinking, well, for, for 
a spaceship that's meant to be pretty much without features. The texture, both on the outside and up inside the uh, uh, the uh, entryway, was very important, wasn't it? I mean, it really was the only sort of scale clue and orientation clue we had at times. Uh, that's correct, but uh, that's a set piece. So we basically didn't do anything except, you know, reconstruction here and there or extend the tunnel. Uh, but the set was a true set. And uh, Denny was a damn about that he wanted the real physical set for his actors to be to feel like they're in, in that spaceship but i mean even on the outside of the ship which obviously was a cg ship um texture is incredibly important for giving some sense of high fidelity that gives because i mean it's it's a big problem isn't it to make something look like it's kind of uh got some scale and some sense of presence and doesn't look just stuck in there when it doesn't have a lot of features. Like, I mean, all your normal tricks of being able to add in fine detail and small things, tell me that something's really big, were taken away from you because of the design of the spaceship because it's obviously meant to be quite uh, remarkably unfeatureless or lacking yeah, features. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of Denis was like, uh, this is a noble piece of rock that's been traveling the universe forever. Uh, so, so the concept was really simple, like a piece of rock. So the design, the production designer developed a couple of, uh, uh, set piece, like just really tiny, uh, element that, uh, we based our, um, our CG uh, spaceship on and we altered a few things because he wanted like the spaceship to be black and in order to react to light we went more like dark gray yeah. which I think uh, gave more volume to the, the spaceship uh, ultimately. One of my favorite shots in the whole film from a just a beauty point of view is this spectacular shot when we arrive at the uh, the spaceship for the first time and there's this waterfall of cloud coming off the right hand side of frame it's a helicopter shot we're starting seeing everything set up um yeah i was just fascinated to ask you like how much of that shot is cg and how much did you just get some i don't know second unit that found some extraordinary place to do some time lapse or something well, this this is uh, incredible because you know I arrived like before we were shooting, like we we're going to that specific location in Quebec called uh, Bic, and uh, uh, I, sh I I went with the uh, aerial DP and we designed the shot basically just prior uh, before Denny was coming, and on the day I was down doing HDR imaging for to put our spaceship there, they had this magical uh, mist. Uh, uh, following the, the, the mountain uh, for real. So there's no VFX at all in, in that mist. That, that is gorgeous photography. And it just, it was also um, such a great thing because without this scale thing that we've been discussing, having all that cloud around it gave the object so much scale. It also gave it presence. It gave it a sense of foreboding. I mean, you must have been really happy with the way that looked. Yeah, yeah. I said like uh, Denny must must be connected to uh, the gods because you know he came, he put, he goes in the chopper and he gets that. And I was just like, my jaw was just went like way down. That's unbelievable. So, what, what about so, choppers and what was on the ground? What was actually there um, during the? Because yeah, about forty five days shoot. I what was like? How much of that was on location? Was it forty five days? I think it was, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, I think we were on location for uh, roughly four, 15 days. There a couple of Saturdays for uh, additional uh, photography. Um, 
everything that's like in the base camp, uh, choppers were all CG. Uh, the f very first shot when we turned around the, the camp, there was absolutely nobody. So all the uh, army is digital. Uh, so th there's a lot of work that's been done on our side to uh, to complement. I mean, this short uh, 15 day shoot. Wow. So um, so at what point did you? Because I mean, obviously there are guys putting up tents and stuff. They've got to be real. I wouldn't see why you bothered with CG. So there's got to be there was like a, an immediate kind of what a, a 10 meter radius around that. Because where was it kind of that? Obviously in the big big wide shots, it was CG. All CG. Yeah. Then after that, once we get on the ground, yeah, those are live actors. But did you have to do set extension down on the ground? Uh, yes, many times. Uh, we had like uh, to extend the, the, the camp and uh, add a lot of material to it. And every time you see a, uh, an helicopter, there's, uh, it's a CG helicopter. And who did that work? Uh, that was done by Oblique. Why did you split up the work so much given that it wasn't a huge film? Was it that you were going for specialists in an area or were you trying to fit in stuff with, in other people's schedules? I mean, I, it's completely a sensible way to work, but I was just wondering, like, uh, there wasn't any sense of just working with one big vendor? Well, you know, I, I've been working like that for many years. Like, I try to, to work with talent. Uh, and uh, when I work with smaller companies, I, I get uh, better results. Uh, because for a better price, right. I mean, uh, that's, that's the key thing. Like if I, I would have had to do this movie with like a blue chip company, uh, would have been double the price. So I've developed a relationship with people that uh, knows me and, uh, we have like, we can really work fast. Well, not doing uh, so many versions and get to something that's uh, photo real in, in a decent fashion and especially at a, at a good price. Like I, I always been chosen on movies like that where, I mean, money is an issue. We still have like beautiful tax credits here in, in Montreal that helps us out. And uh, so working with like more companies, then it's more work for on the production side, on our side. But the end result is, uh, in my opinion, better. So that, that brings us to the spaceships leaving. And uh, obviously the language is circular, the whole idea of time um, not being kind of, we discussed the characters not having like a front or a back because they any which way they move is the way that they kind of move. And so then you have to do these spaceships leaving and obviously the thing would be for them to fly off into outer space, but that would be such a linear exit. Um, it's unsatisfying if they're just not there when they walk outside. Uh, I think FrameSol worked on this, but how did you come up with the design of the exit? Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because in the cut, like there's a lot of rewriting that was done uh, on, on the uh, editorial side. Uh, as far as the ending and all that, so we uh, we work as we went basically because there there was like new elements to it. Uh, and the first cut I saw it was just like uh, a pop out, like basically the spaceship was disappearing in one frame. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And I said, well, I think we have to work on that and try to find something. And uh, the ideas that came to mind that I suggested to Denis is uh, uh, one a mirage effect. And two, uh, 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 retinal persistence. So those were the two terms I, I talked when I, I hired a frame store 
to work with. And uh, Ivan, Ivan Moran at the uh, Frame Store came back with some reference of condensation on airplanes that appear magically. Wow. And so in order to, um, to work this out, uh, instead of just popping out one frame, uh, we uh, design a, a much longer disappearance of the spaceship based on a real true life physical elements. And I think it's truly magical and gives like a, a wow factor to uh, the end of this movie. Did you, um, in terms of these other wide shots, because I mean, you jump around the world, we see, you know, fleets uh, mobilizing in, off the coast of, uh, I think it's China, but there's like a lot of stuff around the world. Were you going for stock footage? How much CG did you have to get up to, to, to sort of, because, you know, obviously it's not... Um, it's not particularly easy to get exactly what you want, but, you know, in a film that doesn't have a killer budget, did you have to resort to CG for these around-the-world shots or how much was that uh, stock footage? Um, I mean, uh, in the editorial side, they try to find as much stock shots as possible. Uh, the, the main story, a world story, was happening on monitors mostly. Uh, so we had, like, to create uh, a lot of elements. We shot some uh, during our 15 days on the St. Lawrence River, we had like real life plates, uh, but uh, again, the story was, uh, I mean, came to fruition really in, in the editorial uh, side. So there's a lot, and I was pushing the editor and Denny to, to get out of those monitors and get real shots. And uh, they finally uh, went that direction. And that's, at, at that point, uh, we had to go full CG. So we have many, many shots in the movie that are 100% CG. Hmm. In terms of the overall plot and stuff, how, how? I mean, I know that you were saying it was doing rewrites, uh, well, not rewrites, but you were adding stuff late in the production. I, I actually had not thought that was the case. I thought that they'd uh, been working on the script for a long time. I mean, I know there were some big changes. Like I think her daughter was a teenager who um, died in a rock accident and that changed uh, to be, you know, obviously the dying of a, uh, an illness. And I, I heard the reason for that was they didn't want to have to do the visual effects of having Amy uh, at a different age. And if they aged her digitally, of course, that would give away um, the plot. Was there, Were there things like that where it was like a combination of you having to sort of say, well, we could do this, but, um, you know, and then the, the coming up with sort of plot solutions or was it more that, you were producing the visual effects to the script that you sort of had? Um, as far as like, there, there was no discussion. Like uh, the script is truly an adaptation of story of your life, uh, but it's not the, the, the story because there's like this addition of the, the worldviews and world conflict yeah. that I don't think was in the original story. Uh, I, I understand the, the principle because I mean, if you want to finance a movie, uh, 50 million, then you, you gotta to have some kind of spectacle to it. So that, 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 that form came, uh, in the script, uh, when I read it. So, and the decision to, uh, instead of going to, uh, rock climbing and just being an accident, I think they went more dramatic, uh, the old girl, uh, dying of cancer. Uh, so this, this, this part was like in the script from the start. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea that Amy's uh, character chooses to take a life um, that is going to have pain, but it's a decision that she takes, and uh, and it just resonates so well. Was there anything that had changed editorially for you, or anything else about not letting people like me 
uh, you know, guess ahead. Because I mean, I, I certainly was swept up in the story and it was very late in the piece before I realized, I think about when you wanted me to, um, that what I was looking at wasn't flashbacks. Was there anything that had to be tweaked and stuff in that? Because I can imagine that that's really not going to come together until you're seeing it in editorial. But it would also be very hard to judge as you guys knew what was going on, what, um, you know, whether it was playing correctly. Um, I think that's that's the the beauty of Denis. Uh, he's, he's an amazing director, very talented. He had this vision, uh, and basically the flash forward at the beginning worked really well. And I was even surprised uh, to a certain point where people weren't truly getting uh, the twist of, of the film uh, till very late in the story. Uh, which is good, and we had to emphasize it a bit, like especially in the courtroom when uh, she starts to, uh, to have those visions. Uh, she had the visions prior, but that's the moment where we have to realize that uh, what we've seen uh, in, the, in the movie earlier is truly in the future. I think one of those variations, wasn't it, that there's in her... I'm not, I don't know, I don't know to describe it. It's like a dream sequence. She flashes to the heptapod in her kind of space. And I think that wasn't shot that way. It was shot with one of the other characters saying that she was going to be, have to be taken off the, off the project because she was one of the only people that understood what they were saying. And actually you added a, a heptapod into, it's sort of like her dream sequence in the, uh, in the yeah. camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Um... Denis, uh, I guess, uh, wanted that motif. I think that's a motif that uh, has been in other of his films. Uh, so he, he came with this idea, and I thought, like, uh, no, no problem, let's do it. And that's actually this, the only time we truly see the alien uh, without its environment, misty environment, which I thought was really interesting. When you say it's a motif in his films, what do you mean by that? Um, it's, I think it's an enemy. Like he's got like spiders. He had like a, a dream sequence like, like that where, uh, he had like a close up of spiders. Um, so he's done that in the past before. But that wasn't as it was originally, like when you were originally shooting it, that wasn't there. It came in later, didn't it? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and so obviously this isn't, uh, a sort of, the sort of film that lends itself to a sequel because it's contained original um, fresh story. But looking back on it now, is there any lessons from this that you would uh, sort of take forward if you were doing it again, if you could go back and talk to yourself at the beginning of the production? Is there anything that you uh, would want to know? You, you're talking about like a control space time? If I go um, back? Yeah, but I mean, also just from a point of view as, as you as in a VFX uh, in terms of your experience, yeah, was there a, any particular thing that you would do differently? Any lessons learned? Um, not really. Uh, I, I think uh, as far as the shoot's concerned, like everything was like on the button. Uh, maybe I would be more mellow because, you know, I was struggling because I was like uh, uh, with a director that has barely done VFX, uh, DP, fresh, young, talented DP, production designer that hasn't done VFX. So I was the only guy really out there like to, uh, watching for my back. And um, even the editor hasn't done uh, a lot of visual effects. But at the end, I look at the mixture of the talent and, and what is the end result. I think it's a direct consequence like of choosing those guys that uh, doesn't care really about the effects and, and wants to uh, focus on storytelling. So I'd be more diplomat 
maybe uh, more understanding because uh, I had to watch my back all the, all the way through this movie, make sure that I was covered in pulse, which I, I find I was. So it turned out good, and uh, I'm really happy of the end result of the film. Yeah, I mean, the film is, uh, is brilliant. Just on a technical point of view, did you have any sort of unit with you that was facilitating stuff? I mean, you, I think you shot on the Arri Alexa. So from a technical point of view, were you prepping material at all for the houses or were you, how did that work? Because I mean, again, you don't have a, a major uh, kind of extra budget for that, but was there a, a clearing house? Was there one of the facilities that was prepping material for the others? How did it you know, get distributed and worked on? Well, we, I mean, the beauty of it, and it was the first time I, I've done that uh, over the last 20-something films I've done in the past, is we were like on the same floor as the editorial, editorial room. So we had the direct access to editorial. We, uh, we, had, we built the, I helped them also, like trying to find compositors. So I had compositor, graphic designers uh, on the floor, uh, trying to work with temps and, and help them visualize uh, uh, the cut. Uh, so, so that's that, that part. And, and after that, like all the vendors were, uh, I had a tremendous team with VFX editors, uh, around me to, uh, serve and, and, and send all the material needed to, to do the film. So it turned out pretty good and nothing special or out of the ordinary. I also used some uh, companies for post-vis for the alien to help out. Right. Um, so any, anything that, that could be used, I, I did to make the, the film within the, the realm of the budget that we had. Well, uh, I, I, I've enjoyed many of your films, I've got to say, um, and not ob- the obvious one. I mean, Source Code was a film that I thought was uh, terrific, and uh, there's just a, a lot of stuff that you've done that uh, I really like. But this one is just an absolute cracker. It, it must be really a joy to watch it with an audience and, uh, and see how it's been received. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, it's just like, because uh, I was saying this morning to another interview, like at some point, like I felt like I had too much candy, like uh, I felt sick to my stomach. And I also had to start another film while this this one wasn't finished, because we we went a bit uh, later than anticipated because of the additional editorial that had to be done. Um, but when I sat down with uh, the first time I saw it, like uh, uh, with my crew, that to 350 artists that were with me on this film, and, and we look at it, and uh, I mean, some even some uh, supervisor had to go to the bathroom, like crying, like it's the first time I work on a film that I really like. Uh, all this said uh, the journey was worthwhile. Well, it was a tremendous film. I just love it to death. So thank you so much for taking time to walk us through it. My pleasure. All right, well, that'll do it for this FX podcast. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.